Hey there, art lovers. Mike Hendley here, and I'm excited to welcome you to the Drawing Inspiration Podcast. In each episode, I'll be bringing you along on my journey as I explore what it means to be an artist. I'll be chatting with other talented artists about their experiences and sharing some of my own insights and reflections on my art journey. So come on in, get comfortable, and let's get inspired together. Episode 99, Artful Balance, Mastering Motherhood and Painting with Sarah McKendry. Hi everyone, welcome back. I'm going to keep the updates as short as possible so we can get right into this wonderful interview with Sarah. So I just wanted to reach out and thank all of you for your support of this podcast. I couldn't do it without you. You know, whether you can support it through Patreon or buy me a coffee, or you just end up sharing this with people that you know that could benefit from the podcast episodes, I appreciate that so much. So I just wanted to say thank you. So I did an interview this week with Etcher, and <laughs> it's going to be out, I think, sometime in June, where I kind of talk about my journey a little bit, and it was a video interview. And I've always been a little bit shy about uh, video. That's why you haven't seen much on YouTube from me yet. I'm trying to get past it. And I feel like Etcher is uh, kind of pushing me in that direction by doing this interview. And maybe it's consistent with my theme for this year, which is Elevate. But it was a wonderful conversation with Anya from Etcher. As I get a sense as to when it's coming out, I will talk about it here and provide a little bit of a backstory. I thought I did an okay job, but I feel like I maybe rambled on a little bit. So I'll talk a little bit more about it here in the podcast so you can get kind of the color commentary uh, that you can listen to before or after the uh, the video. But it was a wonderful conversation. Ania and Etcher are fantastic. I think when you talk about yourself or your art, it, it helps to kind of reframe things a little bit. So I just appreciate that opportunity because I'm so often reaching out and talking to other artists and, and being curious and exploring their journey. And so for me to kind of be faced with the questions coming back at me. It caused me to rethink things a little bit and reframe and, you know, just ponder my life a little bit, where I've been, where I'm at right now, and where I want to go. So I appreciated that opportunity to be able to go and go through that. And I am also working on some other things coming up. I've got a, um, I'm a featured artist for a society, watercolor society I just joined. So that'll be a talk in... I think it's June, the end of June, and I think it's going to end up on YouTube. So if it does, I will let you know. But I've asked, been asked to talk about my journey as I've just joined this uh, watercolor society. And I think I'm so thankful for that opportunity. And it looks to be fun. And I'm hoping to learn quite a bit more about watercolor in addition to the other mediums I work with. So I'm looking forward to, uh, to that opportunity. And I'm once again so thankful that they asked me to do it. I'm also working on that Etcher course that I'm doing in the fall, which will be a six to seven week course. I'm trying to work through the content at this point, making it uh, fun and interesting. Obviously, it's going to be around nature and various elements related to that. I'm for sure going to be including something around fur. I get a lot of requests about how to draw fur, so I'm going to include something about that. I was thinking a cat would be a really good idea, maybe a wild cat, because I could have a combination of the fur and the eyes. I love drawing eyes. And so I'm still working through that content. It's going to be a lot of fun. There'll be homework each week. And uh, I want to push you a little bit. I want to try and see if we can uh, provide some opportunity for six, some success, 
but also uh, challenge people a little bit. So I think I'm going to try and kind of say, here's the, here's the basic level as a matter of let's try and achieve this. But if you want to push yourself further, here's the, here's the advanced way to look at it, or here's something that can push you even further. And I really like that opportunity myself because it gives you that kind of contrast about, you know, I don't have time this week to take up the advanced, but maybe I'll do the basic one. So I may take that approach. I think it'll be um, interesting, but this is a lot of work and I have to pre-record all the videos and this will be probably, I think it's October we're planning to release this. So there'll be more to come with it uh, as I kind of get through this and talk through what I'm doing with that. Once there's an opportunity for you to kind of pre-book or purchase the course, I will let you know here and I'll share it on social media as well. But at this point, it's still in the planning stage, but I'm excited to be working with Etcher on this. And the other bit is I'm uh, doing a conference talk in uh, later this year as well. And once that gets confirmed, I will let you know the talk will be around kind of mastering graphite. So I'm going to talk about all the tools and the techniques and the methods. I'll let you know the conference and when that's happening, but I'm excited about this opportunity and I will share that with you. It should be soon, I think, that maybe the next podcast or the one after that that I can actually talk about it. it seems things are moving here. <laughs> In addition to all of this, I am uh, still planning on doing some videos. If I think I'll have some time, hopefully, over the next two weeks. I've been working on kind of tidying up some pieces I've been working on. So I hope to release those in the next uh, two weeks. And you'll see that on my Instagram feed as well as my blog at mikehenley.com. And uh, that'll give me an opportunity to then move into some other pieces and some other experiences. And you'll hear uh, in this interview that uh, it sounds like oil painting is not that far from me now. So I, I don't know what I'm doing. Uh, but I, I have this... Uh, I don't know, with, with the number of guests that I've had on talking about oil painting, it's it's closer than ever, and Sarah may have put me over the edge, so we'll have to see where that goes. So the other big thing is next episode is 100, and so that's exciting. I've received so many uh, clips from you, audio clips, and I do appreciate that. I'm going to say that, you know, if you've got time and you haven't done it yet, let's say till the 22nd would be an opportunity for you to send a short clip about what you've learned from the podcast or your favorite episode. So I would include it in the podcast, provided the quality is, is decent. And I'll also include a link to your social media in the show notes as well. So it's been wonderful hearing the impact the podcast has had on people. And it's been wonderful hearing from guests as well, past guests, about what they're doing and, and what the episode has meant for them as well. So uh, it's been fantastic. And I'm looking forward to it. I'm not going to have a guest. I'm going to kind of reflect on the last four years. So uh, tune in for that. That'll be uh, May 29th, 2023 will be episode 100. And I'm not stopping anytime soon. I guess at some point I will have to stop. But I feel like uh, the podcast is part of my life. So I think that's it for updates. Let's jump into the interview. Today, we have a very special guest who has turned her passion for art into a remarkable career, inspiring thousands of budding artists around the world. Sarah McKendry is not just an accomplished artist, but also a dedicated educator and published author with her upcoming book, Oil Painting Landscapes. She's an internationally recognized oil painter who, over the last 14 years, has been pouring her heart and soul into her craft. What's particularly inspiring about Sarah is that she has become a renowned figure in the art world despite being completely self-taught. She's a testament to the fact that you don't need prestigious art school credentials or high-end gallery representation to make a meaningful impact and create a successful career in art. 
Sarah chose her own unique path, a path that's resonated with artists and art lovers across the globe. Her work has been featured in multiple international publications, and her paintings adorn the walls and homes of private collections worldwide. Sarah doesn't just create art. She also shares her knowledge and skills with thousands of students, helping to cultivate the next generation of artists. Balancing her career and family life, Sarah is also a proud stay-at-home mom to her two young boys. She currently resides in Edmonton, Alberta, where she paints out of her cozy home-based studio, a testament to her commitment to both her family and her art. To talk about her creative journey, I welcome to the Drawing Inspiration Podcast, Sarah McKendry. Hi, Sarah. How are you? I'm great. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. I am so excited to have you on the podcast. I have to say, when I look at your work, you're an oil painter. I look at your work and I'm thinking, Sarah, you're going to cost me a lot of money because <laughs> I, I feel like I've had oil painters on before and I feel like you're the... You're the one that's going to push me over the edge and I'm going to have to get into oils because the stuff you can do is just magic. And uh, so I'm you kind? totally inspired by you and I'm so anxious to understand your journey and your techniques. And uh, this is going to be a fun ride. So thank you so much for putting the time aside to be on. Well, thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here. You just made my heart burst, uh, by the way. That is so kind of you. Um, and I can't wait to chat about all things oil painting. You know, I've seen you do reels and uh, YouTube videos and that where you talk about yourself and your art. And your two boys are such a core component of who you are and that balance between you being the artist and, and the mom. And and they seem just so core to your life. And, and you know, they're interacting. They get up in the morning wondering what mom painted last night, that kind of stuff. And I'm wondering for you, and this is where I like to explore where artists came from, was that your childhood? Like, were you the creative kid? Were you exposed to that as a child? It's funny because my childhood is the absolute opposite of what my kid's childhood is, minus the sports. <laughs> I grew up in a house. There was no art. There was, it was all sports and being out with family and, you know, spending time outside. But except for my older brother, when he was in high school, there is not a creative bone in any body in our house and so I was a very sensitive and highly emotional kid and I always loved photography and I loved doodling and drawing but I never painted and I was always kind of searching for some outlet and you know the disposable cameras I'm giving my age here you know get to crank them I'd anytime I get them I'd be the happiest kid in the world because I could go try and capture the world around me in a way but in our house it was just hockey it was hockey and you know I, I grew up riding horses I was what would be called a barn rat so I'd be out at a barn if I could sleep in a horse's stall I would have it was my favorite thing in in the entire world but at home I mean I had an incredible family they're so supportive and awesome just not creative in the art sense at all so you were, you didn't have exposure to this. You were an introvert. Uh, I really identify with that, by the way. I mean, I've talked about <laughs> it here before where all my relatives would come over for my birthday and I would go in my room and cry because oh. there's too many people in the house. It's like oh, too heart. much input. <laughs> but it's, uh, it takes a while to kind of manage a, that version of yourself, right? And then it really does to get to the point where you you know, impersonate an extrovert when you have to, mm-hmm. but it's, uh, it's exhausting. And 
I feel like it lends itself to creativity, that kind of exploration. Being a barn rat, I can appreciate too. I mean, I, going up into a haymow and and oh, it's the best it's smell the in the best. world. If you've never done it, you can't appreciate it. And yes. it's just the silence of it all too. It's like yes. you're, it's a different sensory experience because not only are you smelling everything, but the sounds are so muffled and um, I don't know, indescribable way, but the way the light comes through cracks in a barn or, you know, in hindsight, looking back at my childhood, what I was drawn to, it makes absolute perfect sense that I've turned into an oil painter or an artist of some kind. But back then, the thought, I didn't even take an art class in high school. That's how out of tune with art I was (laughs) throughout my entire upbringing, my whole childhood and adolescence. So looking back in hindsight, it's that introverted moments where I'm trying to write words to describe the scenery I see or how I'm feeling and nothing ever seemed to just connect on that level where it just felt like it was finally released or like it came out in the right way and you know now that I found painting I have that but in childhood as I see I'm funny though because I'm an introvert, but I can also tear up a dance floor like it's nobody's business. <laughs> and, you know, I can be the life of a party. I go out and have a hoot. But, you know, now that I'm older, it's not something I want to do anymore. Now I appreciate my need for the quiet introvert. Mm-hmm. And I've really leaned into that, which is shocking to probably most of my relatives because they know me as, you know, Elaine tearing up a dance floor at a wedding. But now I don't even like like taking a phone call. <laughs> an introvert so it's so strange when you look back on you know that introvert aspect of my childhood where I just nothing ever really made sense to me because I wasn't leaning into that introversion I was you know playing sports and constantly out a big I have a big Irish family so you can imagine how those get-togethers are and Mm -hmm. you know you never really take the time to understand why you need that creative release because you don't understand it's not part of your world every day no one's coaching you or teaching you or showing you that part of yourself yeah and it was back it was hard back then too it's probably easier now but I remember back then you know this idea of someone being an introvert um, and even with my daughters like my daughters are 20 and uh, I have to think now (laughs) 17 and (laughs) I don't remember my kids names half the time you're in good company (laughs) Even with them, you know, the teachers continue and for years would say, you know, I, they just should speak up more, you know, that, that it's, they're, they're kind of, you know, too quiet. And it's like, but, but that's who they are, right? Exactly. And it's hard to, because you want them to be engaged and contribute, but they're doing it up here. Like they are contributing. And I think there is value in that. But I feel like as a teenager, it's really hard to tell someone that, you need to kind of, and, and I call it impersonation, but you've got to act like an extrovert. You've got to act like a presenter. You've got to act like a like a dance floor champion. <laughs> but that's not who you are. You don't have to be that all the time, but you can be that part of the time and then walk away from it. And when you walk away from it, you're probably going to be exhausted for a day or two. <laughs> at least. At yes. least. That's like a week recovery for me. <laughs> Well, I hope you, I hope it doesn't take a week to recover from this I podcast. Know. So. Oh, maybe a day or two, because at okay. least this isn't a video, <laughs> so people won't see me. Oh, I didn't tell you it was video as well. Oh, no, I'm done. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> so you're an introvert. You're going through high school. You're not a creative bone that, that you were aware of at that point. It was just just sitting there under the surface. 
what did you go into? Like, what did you end up pursuing? What was your interest as a matter of leaving high school? Well, that was the hard part because all my friends were heading off to university like they had a sure path. And Mm -hmm. um, my dad, he builds custom homes. And so he was always using his hands. And so, you know, I say that I wasn't raised in a creative house, but when I look back at my dad was 100% creativity, but in a construction field where it was designing a beautiful home and knowing how the flow would work and building it from nothing up to something. And so that's really cool. And so I was always working with him on the summers, which part of being the youngest of three and the only girl who's highly sensitive was I always felt like I had to prove myself, but I also never liked getting told that I couldn't do something. And luckily in my house, I was never told I couldn't do something. It was society that's telling you can't do something. So the allure of working with my dad and learning how to build a house, I did it, I don't know how many years I worked for my dad. And I was really considering taking over his business and building custom homes. I really loved it. It was so satisfying at the end of the day seeing concrete walls standing where they weren't before or a roof on a house that your knees were shaking and you hated every second of being up on a forklift (laughs) wobbling in the breeze without a safety harness. (laughs) But you had that permanence. You had something to look back on. And something really spoke to me about that. You know, in hindsight, as now a artist, it's the same feeling at the end of a night when you stand back from a canvas and you look at it and you're like, oh, there's something from nothing which is so appealing to my mind. And when all my friends were, when we were graduating high school and everyone's like, oh, I'm going to this university and this university, I'm going to study this and this, I was blank. And so I had really good grades. And my mom said, oh, just try it. Like go to, apply to some universities, you know, like try, see what you like. And I went and I was studying sociology and philosophy and I hated it. I hated being told that the way I thought was wrong and being graded like someone who using their own opinion of a matter was taking my opinion of a matter and telling me it was less than or not good enough. And it just semester after semester just kind of clicked with me that I really don't want someone else's subjective opinion to push down mine. And like make me feel like my opinion needs work or what have you, or how I feel about something isn't at a university standard or doesn't match what they think it should be. You know, it just never sat right with my soul. And so I left and I moved back to my parents' house and I started working with my dad and it started feeling, as soon as I left, it felt right. It felt like the right choice. I'd, I was floating. I had no idea what I wanted to do. And I still didn't up until the point I picked up a paintbrush for the first time in my mid-20s. Like I was, I just floated, but I really loved working with my dad. And I loved just working with my hands. I think I recognized that straight off was doing something that was physically demanding and was awesome because I really like that the physicality of construction and building a house. But I also just love the fact that it wasn't staring at a computer screen. It wasn't working in an office. It wasn't working towards an end goal I'd never see. It was at the end of every day, I might have smoked my shin with a hammer three times and cried five times. (laughs) But I had four walls and a roof to look at that would be there forever. 
until, you know, for a hundred years, we'll say. And that really resonated with my soul and set me up on a trajectory where I wasn't going to ever really fit into the mold of a traditional nine to five in an office or anything like that. And then working at like how to integrate that into fulfilling career and what that would look like was again, absolutely. I had no idea. It's interesting the way you talk about liberating yourself from the nine to five and working with your dad and and building houses. I think that's, I could see the allure and it's, it's almost Maybe it's fitting that you end up where you are now in, in that kind of exploration of creativity, even though you probably didn't see it as that, you saw it as we're building houses. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. And I think also because my dad was so busy so much of the time throughout my childhood, also just spending time with him mm-hmm. was pretty awesome. Like he's a hardage man with a soft heart and, you know, he could be that until his daughter walked on to the job site. So, you know, I brought out also in him that you need to give me a hug when I'm sad. I don't care if the trades are around. I want a hug. And, you know, I, we, it was a really awesome connection to build, which hadn't been built when I was younger, just because we're so busy. I mean, he's an incredible man. And both my parents are incredible. There was nothing missing in my childhood. But it was construction also was that connection with my dad as well like it was pretty special i think that's what also such a sensitive person and i'm very emotionally connected to things so even if construction like building houses from the ground up wasn't my soul's calling it was filling my soul in a really important way just in the relationship with my dad how would your dad have described that experience working with you how would he describe it to you (laughs) probably painful I don't know, because both my brothers, my middle brother, my I have two older brothers, and my middle brother still builds houses. He's on Vancouver Island, and he's absolutely incredible and talented. And my oldest brother's a firefighter in Ontario, and he's also one of my favorite humans. But they paved the way for me, because they put up with a lot of the harsh dad and, you know, the sons and the fathers working together. So... I think when I came on the scene, dad really had to switch from the hard dad to the one that's not going to make his daughter burst out crying if he speaks to her the wrong way. Mm -hmm. And I think that also brought a fourth, like just allowed him to kind of explore different aspects of his own character in a way. But we had so much fun. That was the end of it. Like we had so many laughs and so many arguments on safety and like being kind and not yelling at people because you know construction sites are hairy to begin with they're just nuts and but you know what i think hopefully he looks back on it with a smile on his face which i think he does because when i was growing up there were not very many women in construction it was a male-dominated industry and not only that we stayed in the same city my whole childhood. So all the trades that he worked with were also like uncles to me. And he coached every kid in hockey. So they were also well aware of who I was and who my dad was. So it was just going in. And I think seeing that I was just as hard worker as any of the other guys on the site. And Mm -hmm. I put my heart and soul into it every day. And I'd like to think he's proud of that. I think he is. 
but I'm most proud of it because I don't like being told that you shouldn't do this job because of you being a girl or what have you. It's just, I just feel like if you're capable, you can do anything. And I love showing that and I love working with my dad through that. So unknown to me at the time that that would be like the roots of what would become my creative journey mm -hmm. because I, I learned so much about myself in that process, but also how important working with my hands was, how important a connection to an end product was and how important it was to not settle for any version of myself that didn't sit right with my like whole heart and soul mm -hmm. and to make sure that I honored that in whatever I did choose to do. So it was a really random roundabout way <laughs> to go about finding a creative journey and figuring out that maybe I need something that is in that wheelhouse for a career. But that's how it was. Do you miss it? Oh, I miss working with my dad all the time. <laughs> I miss it because I'm also like, I didn't, we weren't allowed to sit around and watch TV growing up. We, there was not a day that we were allowed to be inside. And so I miss being exhausted at the end of the day from every muscle hurting. I miss certain aspects of it that are just that, it's that kind of camaraderie where you're just, and now I talk, my dad lives on Vancouver Island with my mom. And so we don't see each other or talk to each other as much. And, you know, now my world involves two of my own children and the chaos and nonstop busyness of that. So I think I just miss that connection, mm -hmm. you know, and just having dad there to laugh at me or make me laugh or give me a hug. Right. So I miss that. But <laughs> excuse me while I start crying about missing my dad. <laughs> I'm sure he would be very proud. I hope he tunes into the podcast. To I, listen I'm going to send it to him. He'll get a good <laughs> laugh, awesome. I'm sure. <laughs> so what happened where you decided, I'm going to pick up a paintbrush? Like, what was that trigger? How did you get to that point? Because that gets magical after that. But what was the trigger that... It's part of my random story of life is I, after I moved back after university to my hometown and was working with my dad, I was approached to get into modeling. And again, way out of my comfort house. I hate being in front of a camera, as you know. <laughs> <laughs> but it was also that like, well, no one's ever told me that I might be able to do that. And, you know, because of that, it was that like, well, I'm, I'm going to try it and just see. And of course, you take a creative person who wants to work with their hands and needs camaraderie with people who matter to her and put her in a concrete jungle like Toronto, I was lost. And, you know, you're constantly told you're not enough. You're constantly told to change who you are and, oh yeah, you look great, but here, take two inches off your waist size or what have you. And you just, it beats you down. And I was never in an environment like that growing up. You know, it was just body positivity. You do, you're you and that's perfect. And I kind of just withdrew and was really confused and lost, but I met some amazing friends, one of who actually ended up introducing me to my husband now. But I decided that I needed something more. And I was walking down Young Street in Toronto and I was doing serving and modeling and just exhausted and lost. And there's this little, sweet little art shop on Young Street. And 
I was so nervous because I had never picked up a paintbrush in my life. I had never, I don't even know what you need to paint a picture first off. Like I'm like, how embarrassing. Like I can't walk in there and <laughs> say, hey, what do I need to paint a picture? Who does that? <laughs> but that was me. And that's why I literally, I'm not joking. I stood on the sidewalk close to the road for about 15 minutes. And I was just trying to look like I was looking up at buildings and stuff, just trying to look like this weirdo sitting on the sidewalk, not <laughs> wanting to walk into an art store. And I finally walked in and it was like, I always say to myself, those are the bravest three steps I ever took. Because when I walked through that door and I saw everything, it was, it shut me down because I was like, oh my gosh, there's too much stuff. And this sweet older gentleman walked up. He's like, can I help you, honey? And I was like, what do I need to paint a picture? And I'm 25 at the time, I think. And he's like, what kind of, what do you want to paint? I was like, Bob Dylan. <laughs> he's like, okay. And he's like, do you want to paint with oils or acrylics or watercolor? I'm like, I have no idea what the difference is between oil and acrylic. And so he walked me through it and I was really drawn to black and white photography. And I said, I think I'll do it in black and white. And so I walked out of that shop carrying, actually I have Bob Dylan here. I think it's a 16 by 16 canvas. And I had a tube of black paint, tube of white paint and three paintbrushes. And I left and I walked the three blocks back to my apartment and I, my little studio and I sat on the floor and I looked at my favorite picture of Bob Dylan and I just started painting. And as soon as that brush hit the canvas, it was like my soul just breathed this huge sigh of relief and like release almost. It was just like, ah, oh, this feels really perfect. It feels really right. And it feels like something that I need to explore more. And so that little random shop on Young Street in Toronto was the start of what I have no idea. Like I had no idea what that would become as I'm sitting here now on a podcast about oil painting, which is crazy to me, but it was absolutely crazy how one little stop into one little shop is what completely changed like the trajectory of my life. Who was the first person you told after you did Dylan that you painted Bob Dylan? Well, I had a couple friends in Toronto who were always stopping by and they were so supportive and they're so amazing. And I was terrified of showing people what I was creating. I was absolutely mortified. I'm like, no, because it's a piece of your soul. It is mm -hmm. so unnerving and it's scary and it's it's anxiety inducing when someone stands in front of something that came from your mind and doesn't say a word it is horrible how that feeling like takes over you. But my friends were just magic and I couldn't afford paint like to buy lots of canvases. So I'd actually just paint over top and some of my friends would take those and then bring a blank canvas for me so that I wouldn't paint over because I liked it. And that's just kind of how it started. And wow. when I was at that bachelor pad I had. My parents were also helping me pay my rent because modeling jobs and serving jobs don't pay very well. <laughs> and I remember my mom coming down. Now, remember, there was not a creative bone in my body growing up that my parents knew about. <laughs> and so at this point, I think I had a Bob Dylan, a Neil Young, and I don't know, some other random painting. 
And she came down. And so now there's art on my walls. And she walked through the door of my studio apartment. (laughs) And the anger I saw in her face was like, you know, when mom's mad. You you have that feeling as a kid in the pit of your stomach. You're like, oh my gosh, what did I do? And so she didn't say anything, but she walks in and she was just looking around. And then she tripped over, she kind of knocked over my little three brushes that were in a thing of water and I cleaned it up. She's like, what's this? I'm like, I just paint. And she's like, what are you painting? I'm like, these. She's like, you didn't paint those. And I'm like, mom, I did. And she's like, you don't know how to paint. I'm like, I know. <laughs> I'm like, but this happened. And I actually had to call my friend and say, can you tell my mom that I actually painted these? Because she thought I was taking the money that they were helping me to pay my rent with to go buy art. And when she figured out that, in fact, I wasn't doing that, she was just, I mean, she's been my biggest supporter ever since. But it was such a funny way for her to be introduced to this new created adventure right that's fun (laughs) (laughs) did she buy any (laughs) i think they've earned a couple free paintings in fact they have no more wall space because i just keep that's awesome you know the gifts of gratitude for all they've given me it's just Mm -hmm. and knowing that they love what i create is just um think they just moved houses and they had to put some of my paintings in storage because they have so many because I yeah that's what parents are supposed to do though right <laughs> that is what they're supposed to do yes I have boxes of grade three art in here right <laughs> yeah. oh I love it I yeah. love it you're in Toronto you're doing this art does this ripple become a wave at some point and push other things out of the way it absolutely does and I had just some weird universal alignment. One of my friends from, uh, one of my photographer friends introduced me to a wonderful soul named Bachman and he was actually an art agent. And so I showed him some of my first paintings and he really got behind me. And again, I couldn't afford, I could afford to eat (laughs) down there. That's about it. And he went out and he bought me a roll of canvas and he, I remember I painted this painting of Gandhi and he took it and another painting to a collector that he was selling some big, beautiful rugs to from one of his galleries and they bought it. And he really showed me that just because I didn't go to an art school that I could still sell a painting. And he gave me, he showed me how to stretch canvases. He's just a lovely human being. And he just gave me confidence that might have taken me a lot longer to get like that validation that I was on the right path that you know is so important when you're first starting out because it's such a nerve-wracking journey and you don't know if you're doing something that's going to speak to somebody or if you don't know if this is something that could become you know anything more than what it is to yourself if that makes any sense and so I was really fortunate that right at the beginning he came into my life and just showed me that, showed me the next couple steps and also helped me sell some paintings, which I never would have imagined I'd be able to do. And from there, it just snowballed. I started getting commissions and then I ended up leaving Toronto, moving back to Ontario. Um, my parents let me set up a little studio in their house, which they cursed me every day for the paint that they were scrubbing off the walls and they moved out. <laughs> I think that's another reason why I keep selling them, sending them paintings because... 
they clean up a lot of paint, paint splatter. <laughs> but it just snowballed. And then when I got back to my hometown, it's just the support was just constant. It was people just being really excited about what I was doing and saying, hey, can you paint this for me and this for me? I mean, commissions are hard and they're soul sucking a lot of the time. But when you're first starting out, mm-hmm. that extra, just knowing that somebody connects to what you're creating and wants to pay you to create something for them in their living space is the greatest fuel you could ask for and the greatest motivation you could ask for as an artist, right? So that meeting of Bachman in Toronto just after I started creating art was the absolute biggest step into realizing that this is something that I really want to integrate into my life forever moving forward. That's awesome. I mean, I I keep saying that, but it's just such a great story to hear (laughs) that transition. Were you doing this full time? Were you then a working artist or were you still doing other things to kind of subsidize the commissions and everything else? You know, I went back to Ontario and the deal was that I moved back in with my parents, but I would help my dad. At this point, both my brothers had left his business and started their own. Um, One is a firefighter and one still building houses, but um, actually... He had moved out to Alberta to start building houses. So my dad didn't really have a left-hand person just to help him out and help run things. And so I really dove into that role again and absolutely loved it. But painting also had become an extension of myself, like something that needed to happen. So I'd go work from seven till six every day, demanding crazy physical construction jobs and then I'd shower and I'd have dinner and then I'd paint from six till two in the morning and I'd go to bed and wake up like a zombie and be really grumpy with my dad <laughs> and then start the whole process all over again. And there wasn't a day that I wasn't painting and there also wasn't a day I wasn't working construction. So it was, I don't know, I think one of the greatest gifts both my parents gave us as you know kids, my brothers and I, was that you don't sit still. And you don't sit and do nothing. Like whether you're out exploring the world around you or doing something, you're not just sitting there idle. And so it didn't even, it wasn't even a question in my mind that I couldn't do both, that I couldn't work my day job and then also work my passion. And I just kept doing that. And it just kind of, that kind of work ethic has carried me to the point I am right now with being a mother and also running my own creative business. So Yeah, this day job is probably way harder than <laughs> other day jobs, right? So hard. <laughs> but you're still doing that evening into the morning painting as well. So how I, long ago was that that you were working back with your dad again? Oh, this is years ago. So yeah, there's a whole life story there in between. But uh, I had moved to Ireland with an old my last partner. And I was there realizing even more that I wanted to do creative like a creative profession of some sort. But um, when that relationship ended, all my family, even my dad, had moved to northern Alberta to help my brother with his job. And so when I was ready to leave Ireland, I had to leave the European Union for northern Alberta. That's the oil fields are all up in Fort McMurray, which is where we were. And so, Mm. you know, it's incredibly lucrative job opportunities. So I got a job 
driving the biggest haul trucks in the world. Because <laughs> that makes sense. You know, that's a totally logical stepping stone on my creative journey. But yeah, but that's so a day job. that was my day job. And it was actually for what it was, because I had to get on my feet again. And I had to find a job just to support myself and, you know, just trying to figure out what my next steps were. And so I'd go to work. It's a 12 hour shift. And I'd show up in my little lunch pail and I'd have my sketch pad and a book. And on breaks, I'd be drawing. I could have my CBC radio playing in the cab the whole time. And it was actually a really fantastic job because you're by yourself. And going back to the introvert, I loved it because it was driving from A to B. Yes, you're backing your truck up to a shovel that puts 400 tons of dirt into your truck. <laughs> and you got to go not run over little pickup trucks while you're driving because it's so huge. But it was so such an easy and calm job because I could sit and think. And that's actually how I began piecing together how I wanted to do the next part of my creative chapter. And slowly people were figuring out that I was an artist that I worked with. And so there's the dispatch worker who's actually now one of my students, which is amazing. This is so <laughs> wild. I, I actually give him full credit for so much because when it'd be raining, you'd have to park these big haul trucks in weather and you couldn't, the, the roads were too slippery and dangerous. So you'd be sitting in your shift in your truck. And when the weather would clear it, he'd come up on the mic. He's like, hey, Sarah, you there? I'm like, yeah. Do you want to stay parked in weather or do you want to go to work? I'm like, weather, please. And so they'd let me just stay parked so I could draw or do whatever I want. Like nice. they just started supporting and buying my art and talking about it. And it's just that validation that you need. Well, there's not seeking validation. It's just that constant understanding that you are on the right path where people are just lifting you up just enough to keep that next foot moving forward. And it happened up there. And that community in Fort McMurray was the most supportive community of human beings I have ever met anywhere. They support the arts in such a beautiful way up there. And I was selling paintings faster than they were coming off my easel because they were so into my story. They were so connected to what I was creating and they believed in supporting someone who was part of their community. And so as part of my creative journey, I give so much love and respect to that community up in Northern Alberta. They were absolutely amazing and they really helped me get some more confidence to take another step away from the random act of driving massive haul trucks into becoming a full-time artist. <laughs> Can I ask you an off-the-wall question? Yes. And I, 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 I'm anticipating an answer, but if I don't get the answer, I'll <laughs> cut at something else. When you smell diesel now, does that oh bring back... <laughs> does that bring you back there? It's not just diesel, it's bitumen. It's the smell of the okay. oil fields. Like Even when I drive by people paving a road... I almost yeah. get a twitch because I'm like, oh, night shift. <laughs> you know, you just, you can't even fathom how like insane that effect is when you smell certain things. You're like, and I'm mm -hmm. still in Edmonton. So, you know, all the refineries are just outside of town here. And so yep. we get constant reminders of my life up in Fort McMurray. It's scent is so powerful. And we'll get to that when I talk about your art as well, because uh, 
I, I grew up on a farm. So anytime I smelled diesel, I would think of going out and doing the haying, right? Like that's, I plow a field for 10 hours. And so I have, I, I bought a tractor like two years ago and it, I got the diesel smell now. I could just turn it on and I can just reminisce. <laughs> it's amazing. <laughs> it's like form oil for me too. Cause before you like pour concrete, you mm-hmm. have to spray this oil. Oh, it was the worst job. But, and if you get a breeze, it's coming back on you. So you're absolutely right. It's like anything construction or oil fields based, there are some sawdust for me, concrete, um, oil, diesel, you name it. Oh my gosh. Starting up a chainsaw. (laughs) Right. If you don't see me right now, I'm shaking my head at just all the smells. (laughs) I just bought an electric one. I felt like I I made my dad turn over in his grave. I moved moved to electric. Sorry, dad. Um, to the art you were doing then was what was the subject was it all over the place was it was it wildlife was it landscape what were you doing so up in up until that point i had actually painted solely with acrylic um and black and white i really really connected with especially animal portraits i loved creating shadow and light and three-dimensionality with like just two colors it was magic to me but at that point, I also started getting really frustrated with how fast acrylic dried. And it was a constant battle. But since I'm completely self-taught and, you know, you just go by what people say, like everyone's like, oh, oil's so messy and oil's so smelly and oil's this and oil, don't do this. It's so challenging. And I was terrified to even try oil because that's all I'd heard. I'd never experienced it. And So up until that point, probably about a year before we left Fort McMurray, I was just painting black and white acrylic for the most part. And then I started with black and white oil just to see how I could do portraits with that. And that was a game changer for me. I was like, oh, I'm like, I could put those lines down and change them. And I don't have to start a whole new canvas because the paint's dried. And, you know, I made so many mistakes because oil is so finicky and if you don't know the right processes you're gonna get cracking paint and yellowing paint if you don't use the right mediums and so I learned quickly because materials are expensive so you don't want to make too many of those mistakes but that's when I started teaching myself how to use oils and by the time we were leaving Fort McMurray I had just started playing with color like just trying to figure out teach myself colors because I knew nothing about color theory. Still don't. <laughs> it's all it's all guesswork. <laughs> but, yeah. And how long ago was that? So a, my son is almost nine. So a, nine years ago, I started painting mm. with oils and color. It's incredible. Like if you're listening to this, at some point, pop into Sarah's site <laughs> and get a look because that's amazing that you've gone from uh, kind of exploration and you know the the black and white and the acrylics but go, gone into color and to the point where you are now where it's just magical so, so you start into color you start into oil then you move into color and then what happens with that do, do you like how did your art, artistic journey change did you focus on the works that you're doing now or no so before so when I first, I met my husband up in Fort McMurray, um, his name's Joel, and he's my favorite human on the planet, and also the most supportive human on the planet. And when we first met, this is right before I started driving haul trucks, he was also working in the oil field, but he was just gutted 
that I wasn't just pursuing my passion. And his mom, who is, oh, she's just absolutely spectacular human and incredible, incredible with textiles. Her eye for color is just magic. And so she and him banded together just to say, why are you not doing art full time? And there's so many conversations with my husband where he's like, I, you should be painting. You should, he's so supportive of me just pursuing art as a full-time passion. And eventually after a couple years of hearing his constant support, we decided that that's what I would do. And so I left to the absolute horror of both our families. I left a six figure job <laughs> that was stable and secure to pay, to join into like his mom understood because she's a creative person. My family mm -hmm. was just like, well, what are you doing? And so it was his dad, <laughs> I think too. Um, but I just, we both knew it was the right step. And I decided to start really pouring myself into it. So it wasn't just at night, it was all the time. And at that point is when I started realizing that I wanted to explore oils more. And I really wanted to, much like when I was young and riding my horse to the fields and seeing the way the light hit the grass, which reflected up into the leaves, which picked up a little hint of the blue of the sky. Like I didn't realize how much I was taking in all through my childhood in terms of the natural world around me. And I started realizing that I really wanted to figure out how to take those memories and those colors and how could I create that on canvas out of nothing. And that became, which is still to this day, my addiction and my absolute passion and something I never grow tired of and I'm always learning and exploring. But it was at that point when I, like my husband and I chatted and I decided to leave that job that I really started deciding that I really want to do landscapes. And I really wanted like, see if I can get all those core memories that I've locked deep in my mind and my soul, if I can figure out a way to translate those into brushstrokes on canvas. And so that's kind of where the floodgates opened. Yeah, it's amazing the work that you do with the mist, because when I first saw your works, I thought I saw the mist moving. And, <laughs> You're you know, so sweet. You've, you've got a couple of pieces where you see uh, like daybreak where you see it on the water and I could see because I've spent so much time in there I could see the mist rising right as Aww. it gets burnt off and and a, a piece of art speaks to me when I feel like it's telling me more about that point in time than I'm seeing I feel like I'm, I'm seeing movement right mm -hmm. and your pieces you can feel the cold of the mist. You can smell the cedars and the pines. Like it's, um, your work is just incredible. And then I, then I saw that you did animals as well. It was like, oh my, like it's, this is too much. And so I think it's, it's so good that you've, that you captured that inventory of experiences and that you got to a point in life where you could share it with others this way. And I, th I think that's, what's really magical about it, right? You're so sweet. Thank you. Like I look at this, I see Vancouver, I see BC. Is this, are you inspired by that part of the country? Is that what's driving this? Yes, absolutely. So most of our family is either on the coast or in the Okanagan. And so we spend so much time in those places, which is just my soul's 
absolute happiness. And then also just outside of Calgary, going towards Canmore and the mountains and Jasper and Banff, we live in such a beautiful part of the world. And even here in Edmonton, there's like the North Saskatchewan River with the trees and autumn and there's magic everywhere, I whether I where I live or where we travel to. And my heart and soul belong on the coast, without a doubt, as you can see by 98% <laughs> yes. of my paintings. And I can, what I really can draw upon as an artist is I can close my eyes and I can remember scenes that I saw that took my breath away. And I can figure out a way to make that into a canvas. And so I'm really grateful for that ability where... I can draw on those memories a lot and they almost just stay burned or etched in my mind. And so even though I am here in Edmonton, I can still paint what I've seen, you know, on all of our visits and our travels and especially in the depths of an Alberta winter when it's minus 55 out and you mm -hmm. can't even leave. I am so grateful to have the ability to transport myself to other places through my brushstrokes, which is really exciting. Um, and I'm really grateful for that. That's an amazing ability to have. And you can really, you, you can see the passion in your work. You can see that that's a from experience. And uh, it's just, it's incredible. Like I'm looking at, I have to say, Norwegian Sunrise is an orca with this beautiful sunrise in the background. It just <laughs> blows my mind. I mean, I love the, the summer mist and after the rain, but that Norwegian sunrise with the orca is just like, yeah, I want to oh, be there. Oh, thank you. <laughs> um, and that's what's so cool about, you know, this day and age with like connection. There's this incredible couple who lives up in like northern Norway and they run these orca expeditions up there. And I saw an image and I said, I reached out to them and I said, oh my gosh. I'm like, would you mind if I use your imagery for a painting? And they were over the moon like they're so excited and i love that this day and age you're not restricted to where you are if something speaks to you as an yes. artist you have an entire universe to draw upon you're not stuck with where you can go you're not limited by any means and and also that people are so open to sharing their creative work with others you know like that photographers who are out in the mountains in france or were up in the fjords of Norway or, you know, wherever they may be, they are open to sharing their experiences through their art with another artist who can then right. share that experience in a different way, in a different medium. So, yeah, it's pretty special. I've seen you mentioning quite a few photographers in being able to use their reference photos. And I really do think that there's a huge value in that. And, you know, absolutely asking permission. Mm -hmm. <laughs> oh, absolutely. And most... Most photographers will say, yeah, that's cool. Like I'm I'm doing a little baby sea turtle because there's a photographer who does these wonderful sea turtles. Uh, I'll link to him and in his Instagram. And uh, he's, um, I I'm going to probably try a couple little baby sea turtles because come on, baby They're sea turtles. So cute. <laughs> They're the best. <laughs> oh my gosh. So it's, um, we do have that opportunity now. Mm -hmm. We can connect with the people who originated the photo and have an, a creative experience with them. And, you know, normally what I'll do is I'll send a print as a matter of, of thanks. Yes, absolutely. Um, I'm the same. Yeah. And it's, 
you don't have to think about it like, oh, I have to spend, you know, $500 on an image, a photo. Like this is a different experience mm -hmm. than you using it for commercial purposes. That's right. As, as you know, putting it up on the side of a building or something. This is mm -hmm. kind of a creative share, right? So Absolutely. So I want to kind of get into your process in understanding how you create. And I think maybe the best way to approach it is what, for now, at this point in time, do you have like a size or two, because I think you did a whole haul where you brought a bunch of canvases into your house. I think I remember that, right? I have a problem. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Is, are, are there a couple, two, three sizes that you prefer? Because they seem, all, all of them seem quite large, but... I have I have a problem. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I was actually saying to my husband yesterday, because I was working on a 24 by 36 um, whale with a tail coming out of the water just for my next collection. Mm -hmm. And it was everything in me for willpower to keep it that small. I don't know what it is, but I'm not joking. You can barely walk down the hall towards our front door right now. There's so many canvases there. And our basement is full with like blank canvases and also stuff for shipping. But I don't know what it is. It's like my ideas, they feel especially with the big wildlife pieces. I just feel that I don't want them to be restricted to a small canvas. I want the expanse of the animal and the, the presence to be felt beyond what a small canvas can do. And now I love small canvas. 30 by 40 is probably my go-to size for a lot of my landscapes or 36 by 48 or 24 by 36. But I think I have 20 to 30 canvases that I can't even fit down towards my basement they're so big because I like that freedom and I don't ever like some nights I feel I'm like oh my arm's really tired from all the blending work I did I'm like I'll just do something little and I love the ability to just go grab a canvas that suits what I'm feeling mm -hmm. but I also love the ability to go grab a canvas that suits when I'm really inspired so I'm not limited to just what I have on hand with a few smaller sizes I love I literally have every canvas size under the sun, I think. <laughs> it's no joke. It's ridiculous. I'm an expert stretcher because of it, but I just, yeah, I think I really- Are you building your own canvases? I used to. Yeah, I do. Okay. And I, I still do. I, I still, now I use proper stretcher bars and frames, but my dad, when I was living with my dad, we'd actually go build all my frames, which was fun because I, I mean, I could go build frames easily with all the tools I've been taught how to use, but for just- being able to change just like, so if I buy all my stretcher bars, then I can kind of, once I've piece is sold, or if I have to ship a piece internationally and it's not on its frame, I have those stretcher bars left over and I can then change those stretcher bars into different size canvases. I'm not restricted to just a set frame size. So I do like that, fr like um, freedom with my stretcher bars. And I have a massive pile of those for, and a huge roll of canvas. So if I want a custom piece, I can easily create it. That's fantastic. And so let's assume you, you've, I, I don't know if the, if the process is different, whether you buy a prepared canvas or mm -hmm. you build your own, because prepared means that it has a coat or two coats of gesso on it. Um, are you prepping your canvas differently? Like if, even if it's pre-gessoed, mm -hmm. whatever the term is, because I'm not an oil painter, so I'm coming at this differently. <laughs> I'm going to ask you a lot of silly questions. Uh, are you doing additional prep to that mm -hmm. canvas, even if it comes with gesso on it? Yep. So I usually buy double or triple primed, and I put at least one to two coats of gesso on top. Now, a lot of people, especially 
people in the art world would say you need three to six coats, but I really like thin layers of paint and I love having that texture of the canvas coming through. It's something that really speaks to my creative process. So every, I could technically paint on right onto the canvas that I buy because it's usually triple primed. It's just the roll of canvas I get. But I do like to put a couple extra coats of gesso, really thin coats, just to make sure there is that adhesion to the oil to that acrylic layer underneath. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it's a bit the same process. I After I sell a collection, I usually give myself a couple days, like a week off just to recollect. And then I realize I have to stretch 20 new canvases and it's almost like a teenager trudging down the stairs with my shoulders slumped and, you know, and I, I lose my fingertip like my fingerprints are raw from stretching and my arms hurt and I got blisters from my but it's part of the process for me and you know I really think that part going back to my construction that mm -hmm. hands-on that physicality really is important to my creative process it's much like as much as I have a hard time spending all that time shipping out, you know, 30 paintings from a collection. And I dread the week it takes me to prep. And it's such an important part of my creative process because it's that downtime. It's not every day can't be in front of an easel. You know, you could, you won't have that same drive and inspiration. So for me, it's a shipping, also the prepping all the canvases before a new collection that creates that anticipation and that energy and that excitement that, oh, finally I'm back in front of my easel. You know, all the dreaded administrative work is done and the stretching is done. And so I do buy a lot of pre-stretch canvases now because of motherhood <laughs> and yes. that whole thing where, you know, time is mm -hmm. in short supply. Um, but yeah, I do secret. It's a love-hate relationship with stretching my own canvases for sure. Let me ask you this and then we'll get to the rest of the, how you prepare for all of this. Uh, when you're starting a new collection, do you have a sense of, I'm going to need three, three by four. I'm going to need like, or do you just kind of randomly choose sizes and, and just see what's going to end up on there? So I don't ever know what my collection is going to look like before I start it. And I think that goes back to why I have, why my family lives in a constant state of canvas dominoes. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's nuts around here because I just, in my, it just goes back to what I said earlier. It's just, I don't know what I'm going to feel at that time when I sit down and, you know, I have all the images I've taken over the years and I have inspiration from photographers that I love and admire who I do collaborations with. And sometimes I will think I want to paint a huge whale and then I'll end up painting, you know, a really powerful forest scene or something that's really small. And I like having every option available and I'm kind of a pack rat that way because I have three big rolls of canvas and I have all my stretcher bars and I have all my pre-stretch canvases, but I don't like feeling like I'm missing out on a creative opportunity to be really inspired and excited about a painting because I don't have those materials handy. Right. So I kind of don't know where I'm going with each collection. I know the end goal is a certain amount of paintings before I decide to actually launch it, but what is in that collection is completely random. So I had this, I heard this come up on a, I listened to Art, Art Juice, which is another podcast, and they were talking about, I, I guess there was a question from a listener about what is a collection. And I thought it was, it, there's a whole discussion around that. What do you consider, how would you define a collection? 
So for me, a collection is just a body of work that was created in a certain time frame. I don't do it based off of a certain subject matter. Mind you, it could just be a landscape collection with a couple of wildlife pieces. I feel like wildlife is even connected to the landscape. So I feel like, I think for myself, they just blend together so seamlessly mm-hmm. that I just see a collection as when I put together a body of work that I'm really happy with. It doesn't have to be all mountains or all forests or West Coast or East Coast or animals or whatever. I just feel like it's all much like my brain. It's kind of scattered. (laughs) It's kind of like a little all over the place, but still the whole core is that like feeling of awe at the natural world, whether it's a wildlife or a beautiful scene that, you know, is brought to life on the canvas. Cool. So when you're starting these pieces, how do you start? Are you, and once again, not an oil painter, do you, (laughs) are you, like, I would think maybe it's a different approach if you're doing Arctic Hunter, which is a polar bear versus doing After the Rain, which is trees with a mist. So I assume maybe there's slightly different approach in Mm -hmm. like with the Arctic Hunter, are you sketching out the polar bear? What are you sketching with versus After the Rain where you're, maybe you're focusing on I don't know. Maybe you can talk through that. Absolutely. So wildlife pieces are completely different process than my landscapes. For wildlife, I really like to make sure I get the composition correct because I really like a balanced painting at the end. So I will actually sketch out the animal onto the canvas and make sure it feels right before I even begin to paint. With landscape, it's just free flow. It's To me, my landscapes are a feeling and they are something that just kind of needs to come really organically in terms of how my paint moves onto the canvas and how I, I have an idea in my head and I, maybe I'll have my reference photo or if it's just an idea and I'll just need to start like blocking it out with paint. Like it's just really free and loose and because it's oil paint, it doesn't dry. So I'm not stuck with whatever I sketch out quickly with my brush. I mean, you can see on the painting behind me, I've just really roughly put in some mountains for my background layer, and I'm just starting to work on the sky. It's There's nothing really, I don't know, concrete about my process for landscapes. It's really a flow, and it's sometimes I start at the bottom of the canvas, sometimes I start at the top, sometimes it's in the middle, sometimes it's just whatever I feel, what color needs to go where at the beginning. Whereas with my wildlife pieces, I do like to have a sketch. I grid out the canvas just to ensure that I have everything in the right spot. And then I do the background. I just quickly do the background and then I start working on the animal. So they are very different processes. The the wildlife take a lot more. I mean, understandably, there's so much more Mm -hmm. detail to a wildlife piece. But landscapes for me are kind of my play in a way where it's just, it's free. It's not restricted. I can throw a tree anywhere I want. I could put a mountain anywhere else. I can erase it quickly with the brush. Like it's just what feels right when I stand back from the canvas. And I assume maybe the, is the approach different? Like I'm looking at after the rain, for example, where you've got some trees in the foreground and then behind them, you've got some mist and then you get some trees that are just slightly covered by the mist. And then there's more mist. Are you working back to front? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you have to with this technique especially with the mist technique. And that's why I teach my students in all my classes is just you always want to start the furthest away and move towards the foreground. And that way, I mean, I'm sure you can MacGyver it and like 
do some of the foreground and piece in the background. But once you dial in that background, you don't have to mess anything you create that you really like from that point on, because you've figured out what you want already in that, you don't have to touch it again. Now you can change it, like by all means, you're not stuck with that background, but it allows you to have everything stay the way you want it on the next layers, because you're not getting a blending brush in behind a tree and then all of a sudden that tree splint like smushed over onto the left and now you have to re-blend that whole section. And it's an absolute domino effect of chaos with oil paint because as you know, it doesn't dry quickly. And so mm -hmm. you have to be really methodical on your approach, even though you can still have fun in that process. You just also have to remember that, okay, background, middle ground, foreground, just keep that in. And even though you can be free flowing with each of those stages, at least you're setting yourself up for like success on any of the layers you bring towards the foreground. So can I ask you a technical detail? Because when I look at After the Rain and New Dawn, I immediately think of Bateman Robert Bateman, because he whitewashes his backgrounds, right? Okay. And so I'm wondering, just operationally around your mist, because the mist is brilliant, because you can, it's not like just a plop of mist. You can see that it's got stringers and however you want to describe it, right? <laughs> are you, you know, maybe even after the rain, are you whitewashing that on top of the trees? Yes. No, it's not really whitewashing. Sometimes, not whitewashing, I guess. No, I don't you mean. Term. No, no, yeah. uh, just a light, uh, yeah. really thin layer of paint, right? Yeah. Is that what you're talking yeah, yeah. about? Yeah, that's what I mean. Yeah, so it happens. See, it's so hard to describe because I don't even know I'm doing it half the time. I'm shocked just as much as my husband is with what's on the canvas after I'm done. I'm like, oh, I kind of that's cool, because <laughs> like, you it's much in the many creative process. You zone out, you go into a different realm mm -hmm. of existence where it's very meditative. So I'm building these layers and I'm putting the mist in, and I might lay down the mist in front of a layer, and then I'll do something completely different and come back with a different light color on my brush and just do a quick pass, and it transforms the scene into a totally different feel and energy and look. So I don't know if I, I can't even, I, you know, I teach my students the basics of mist building and how I do it in a, like that forest scene where that, that you know, many of my mount, misty mountainsides, I call them, which is yep. the forest sitting in the hill and the different layers. But that's just a ballpark, like general skill set to develop from, because as you get comfortable with those skill sets, you find yourself doing stuff you're not even thinking about with blending, especially in the background. And so there is no real set method to my madness in a way. It's just, I don't really know what's happening half the time because I'm kind of in a meditative zone as a send out and just kind of flowing with it. And much like every other artist, I'll look down and I'm like, why is this so hard? And I'll have like 17 brushes in each hand. And I don't know how any of them got there. So I don't know what brush I'd use to do what, or it's just one of those incredible things about the creative process, right? Like you wish you could sit and say, oh yeah, I did this, this, and this to get to this end point. But in reality, I couldn't actually tell you the whole process. Unless somebody takes your course, which we'll talk about a bit later. <laughs> this is true. This is true. Good segue. <laughs> so I want to ask you about brushes, but I'm just flipping through here and I'm just what I, I don't know if this is intentional. I think it's kind of cool. 
I look at things like Tranquility, and I'm calling out names that you probably or may or may not remember the the scenes, but uh, Sleeping Giants, and what was the other one? New Dawn. I find it so cool that you've always got this tree that's not quite like the other trees. The best missing, trees. <laughs> missing the branches, a little bit solo, maybe a woodpecker nest in there. Yeah, every a, tree a deserves a like Every tree deserves its like, time yep. in the sun. And I actually teach that to all my students. It's like, there is nothing in nature that is perfect, whether it's an animal, whether it's a tree, whether it's a scene around you. There is nothing that is perfectly symmetrical and, and I don't know, perfect. And so many artists, they feel that a forest needs to be all these beautiful, full trees. Mm-hmm. But the most beautiful forests that I look upon are ones where it makes my eye dart from different to different places. I'm like, oh, that's really powerful. Why? Because there's something that doesn't quite fit in with everything else and it makes it look real it's whenever i paint the fur on a horse i make sure there's something like i just make sure there's a little nick in his coat or something that like maybe it's from a bug bite or something you want to always just have something that isn't a perfect surface and for me and i every single course i say this i'm like make sure you put some dead standing trees in your forest because that's what a forest looks like out in the natural world. Like you're going to find, even if it's just a dead branch coming off of a beautiful mm-hmm. tree that's full, you make it look realistic because that's what nature is. It's not perfect. And it's those little nuances that to me are the most beautiful. Are you the tree? Because <laughs> <laughs> That antisocial tree is me. <laughs> I'm looking at, especially deep quiet. I see this little tree by itself in the middle, and all the other trees are trying to talk oh, to like it. Oh, paintbrush and, like, and waving. Yeah, that's me. That's right. I should actually make some branches a little paintbrush. You know, I'm going to look at those trees differently every time I paint them. I'm so sorry. <laughs> Self portrait. I'm just put that forest. That would be good. That would be awesome. Would You're be onto so something, good. Mike. <laughs> so, I know. I'll say it again. I know nothing about oil paint, but I'm wondering about <laughs> what brushes are you using? Is Are there, like you say, you end up with a handful and I've seen views of, so let's not go through all the brushes because that'll be episode, that'll be part four of the episode. I have two brush, types of brushes I use. Okay. Because you have a whole bunch of them. Yeah. But... I have thousands of those two brushes. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I am, obs- so I have tried every blending brush in the entire universe, I feel. Just trying to find one. I had a pro art brush I really liked for a while, but I just found it, mm-hmm. I don't know, lost its magic after a couple uses. But then um, I was introduced to Escoda brushes, who are my favorite. Now, I have no affiliation with them beyond the fact that I sell them in my shop because I'm such a deep believer in their magic. And they have this natural bristle blending brush, and you can't see them. But I think I have about 60 <laughs> that I use because <laughs> I work on such big pieces and I don't like my colors getting muddy. So I just grab a new one whenever I'm doing different sections. Okay. And so I use a Skoda blending brushes. And then I also love cheap, well, not cheap quality, but just inexpensive um, white tacklon brushes. And, you know, the flat and the filbert. Those are my favorite just for those sharp, crisp edges. And my I'm a rough painter with my brushes so they don't last long so I can't justify spending $40 on a beautiful detail brush which I know I will destroy way too quickly so my I sell 
the most affordable brushes for my process in my shop. And it's also what I also use in my own studio because I don't want to promote using a really expensive brush that, you know, might be really challenging for some students to afford and it doesn't last them. So you'll get the same with my techniques that I teach because there's a lot of, you know, rough blending work and what have you. I just really like the simplicity of having brushes that don't break the bank, but they're just perfect and effective with the same, you know, suppleness against the canvas and crisp edge or just those bristles that really blend nicely for that mist look. And so are you picky about the paint? Is, is the paint a little bit more? Yeah, I'm, with paint, I'm, I'm just drawn to the textures of some paint and the colors that some, I really like Winsor Newton for affordability. They're great. Um, M. Graham and Co. are, I love the texture of their colors and they have a much more rich and like vibrant color whenever it's mixed mm -hmm. with others. And so um, I really love those and they're the, both the most, most affordable. I've recently grown obsessed with Williamsburg, which is not on the cheap side. Golden owns, owns them now, which is like... Yeah, it's they're wonderful colors, but I don't offer those in my shop just because they're not needed to create, you know, beautiful art. It's just an extra luxury to play with as you get more confident with what you want to create. Out of the three components, mm -hmm. let's say there's three components, the canvas, the brush and the paint, where should people spend most of their attention if you had to choose one? Well, you need a canvas is kind of not a big deal because every canvas is kind of the same. Right. You can apply your gesso and you have the same surface to paint on. So I'd say brushes because you can create magic with any kind of oil paint. All the colors are equally beautiful and it's just the techniques that are going to change what your outcome is from using any colors, whether you're using, I don't know, Holbein or you're using Winsor Newton or you're using Williamsburg or Old Holland. Um, it really doesn't matter because if you know the techniques, which you require good brushes to do, then you can use any paint to create any effect. So I'd say the brushes are where you should, just good quality, at least for the techniques that I use, like that's where I spend the most money is, and have, I should say, I have spent the most money trying to find those perfect brushes. And now that I have them, they last so long because I know how to take care of them. And I, I mean, they're the tools, right? You, without a good brush, you can't create a nice painting. Unless it looks like finger painting. <laughs> yes. Which I'm not opposed to. <laughs> <laughs> I had an artist on and uh, she had a new book called, uh, a book called The New Oil Painting, where she addresses kind of the toxicity of painting and that. And I'm wondering, you know, especially with someone who has two young kids in the house, uh, can you comment a bit about, because that's one of my concerns, right? Mm -hmm. I, my my quote unquote studio is in my basement. I've got basement windows. Mm -hmm. I don't have a way to kind of liberate the air. So I'm kind of like, well, I don't know if I want to take this on because I may love it and then may be forced to kill myself early because I have to do it in this my basement. True. So how do you, do, how do you address that? Do you think about it? Uh, do you have ways to manage that? Yeah, what's really was shocking to me is that acrylic paint is actually equally as toxic as oil paint. I mean, they use the exact same pigments. The only thing with acrylic paint is actually, sorry, it's actually more toxic is they use binders. So they use lots of chemicals to bind that paint to create that, that medium. Whereas oil, they're using the same pigments, but they're using a natural medium to 
create the paint. So there is no added toxicity to it. It's just linseed oil or walnut oil mixed in with a pigment. So you do have a smell, but it's not a toxic smell. It's whenever you start using turpentines or you start using those alkydes that aren't like, or liquid light gel or what have you that are actual chemicals, like chemical compounds, that's what makes the oil paint toxic. And so I was shocked to learn that because I thought acrylic would be the way to go if you want to avoid that. But the off-gassing from acrylic is very dangerous. It's not a safe medium to use. I mean, watercolor is the most, well, I'd say watercolor and oil are very similar. If you don't use any, um, you know, chemical agents with them, they're both just pigments and oil, like a natural oil or just water. So for me, oil painting is not something I'm scared about. What I do do though is because I'm always priming canvases with an acrylic gesso. And because um, just my process and the amount of paints I have, paintings I have sitting in the halls of our house, we have air purifiers. And so we've always had them ever since I started painting. Um, and we have one on every level of our house, just as an added precaution. And it just gives us peace of mind. And we have, I think, Austin Air purifiers. They're fantastic for small spaces and they're around $400. And they take out all the like excess gases. They take out any chemicals that are in the air, which, you know, I have two young kids and it's been so important, especially as a home-based studio and the magnitude of the work I put out. It's very important to our family. And so the one I have on our main floor, it's called the IQ Air. And it's a medical grade um, air purifier. It was about $2,000 to get it. But wow. because... I'm at a point in my career where I'm painting so much and I have so much going on in the house and I always want to be in the house I'm close to my family. I don't want to have a studio. It's like my, our youngest has um, two autoimmune diseases. So we're constantly just, I need to be on. Even at night, I need to be able to be close to them so I can help if ever anything's needed. So it was an easy justification for me to buy that. It's like, okay, no, that's, it's just a no brainer for us to have air purifiers, but a simple fan and an open window or an open door are absolutely fine. If you have a space that, or you don't have any air purifiers. Are you doing anything special when it comes to like cleaning brushes and that? Are you? Mm -hmm. I have an air purifier in that room too. Okay. <laughs> and then um, I wear a mask just for any splatter that comes up, but I use EcoHouse odorless solvent and I recycle it all. So what's great about oil painting is you clean your brushes and once you get them nice and clean, you pour all your used solvent into a jar and all the sediment falls to the bottom and it's just left with perfectly clear solvent. So you're just reusing the same solvent. At the end, you just have your residue, which you can essentially reconstitute into oil paint. It's essentially oil paint. So there's ways where it's a little bit more environmentally friendly than pouring everything down the, sh the sink, like with acrylic where you're washing your brushes and it's all going down into it. But I mean, every single creative medium in terms of painting is toxic to the environment in some way, shape or form. Right. Yeah. Even watercolor, depending yeah. on, you know, if you've got cadmiums or, mm -hmm. you know, it's all a problem. You should never, I, I, I did some watercolor painting on a, a paddleboard and, you know, the last thing you want to do is pour your your uh, water container into exactly the river, right? so, exactly yeah. so it's just ways to mitigate the worst parts of it and like find a way to make it less bad <laughs> essentially how much time are you spending on a piece this is where 
you know, I get lots of questions from emerging artists, especially, and just they're trying to figure out how I'm able to do the kind, the amount of work I do with the amount of time. I'm a very fast painter. It, these ideas come to me and then in a couple hours I can have base layers down that are really close to a finished piece. It's just the way my brain works and my, I don't know if it's just from all that construction and swinging a hammer, my hands just, <laughs> they just fly around a canvas and I go into that meditative state and I don't know how or just how long it took, but paintings happen really organically and really quickly for me. They're just, I think when something feels right for your soul and you're completely lost in that creative process, for me, it happens much quicker Then you know, it doesn't take me months to do a single piece. It takes me a day or two to really get a piece dialed in to where I'm happy with it. Do you do any digital work? No. As you saw me trying to set up my microphone for this <laughs> podcast, I kind of stay away from anything digital. <laughs> <laughs> That's fine. That's absolutely fine. The other question I have for you is, is you were talking about, you know, when you were up at Fort McMurray that you were sitting in a truck and sketching. Are you still sketching? No. And you know what's funny? Like I, I always really sketched like caricatures because I was just like little superheroes or stuff like that. There was nothing <laughs> that was remotely close to what I create now. But I think it was just a way to kill the time and just, you know, be creative. I'd make little, yeah, like I'd write, do a, still do a lot of writing and just like, you know, just fun stuff to kill the time. But it, nothing that really is close to what I create now, actually. It was just more so of creative release. And so, I mean, you're a studio painter. Like, you, do you, have you done any plein air or is everything in studio? I, I was, I went to France and I studied at a studio. I didn't study. I just, there's like an artist who just visited that studio. And he took me out to his great aunt's house in the countryside. It was the worst experience of my life because I'm so used to like having... I don't know, order. And I had the wind knocking over my, my canvas and my paint was spilling and I couldn't figure out the colors. And then the light would change all of a sudden and my poor heart couldn't handle it. So I have so much respect for every artist who can handle working out in the natural environment. But I am a, I'm a hermit. I like my order and knowing that there's not gonna be a gust of wind or a cloud that's gonna just totally change the way my painting works. I was painting outside last weekend, and I dropped my uh, my palette. Oh no! Tiny, and and they basically exploded <laughs> because they're all held on with magnets. So I had like thirty of these little tiny metal palettes uh, containers, oh, pans all over the place. And everyone's like, there was other people around me, and they were like, "Are are you okay? Do you want it? it's like, no, it's fine. Oh, <laughs> I'm let cool. me suffer my pain I'm by cool. myself, please. I'm okay. Yeah, <laughs> it'll be fine. You know, it took you a while to kind of get to where you are, right? Through all these experiences in your life. And you start doing it professionally and you're painting and then you decide you want to teach. So what what was that trigger? What made you decide, I, I got to, I should teach now. Was it because revenue stream? Was it because I need to share? How did that start? So immediately after my... I left that job to pursue art full time. I found out I was pregnant with our first son, which is exactly, which is super exciting, but it's not exactly what was planned for that new step. So immediately my brain went into, okay, I got to find a way to make 
you know, make artwork for my new journey as a mother. And so I began just really diving into making sure I made time for myself. And as the years passed and one child turned into two and I was still able to keep that momentum going, I had so many people, especially moms, writing, asking how the heck I was able to paint while having two kids under two or two rambunctious four and five-year-olds. Like a lot of questions has come in. And so in the back of my mind, I'm like, well, how can I share my journey with others? And it came to a point um, about three or four years ago where people started asking about my technique with my mist quite often. And, you know, it never really crossed my mind to become an art instructor because I'm a self-taught artist. So who the heck am I to think that I have the knowledge or wisdom or skill set to guide other people. But then I started thinking, well, forget that because I am a self-taught artist, but I am creating art that speaks to people. And so why should the fact that I don't fit mainstream society's view of a professional artist, why should I let that stop me from sharing what I know for with anybody who cares to, to learn it? I mean, I'm not an expert. I am not a professional teacher. I did not go to a single art class in my life. I'm still figuring out colors. I'm still figuring out my technique and I'm making mistakes, but I'm learning from them. But why can't that be something that is shared with others who might be in my position, who didn't go to an art school, who don't can't afford to go to an art school, who don't believe in art school or what have you. And so I kind of just put my fears and self-doubt aside and I started filming for Skillshare, actually, some of my classes. And then it kept growing and people were really resonating with my teaching style. And I did it because I really wanted to share my journey and what I've learned with people who are of the same mindset of myself, where you don't need to be some fancy graduate from an art school or have gallery representation with a top gallery in order to create meaningful art that's beautiful and speaks to yourself, but also to others. And I didn't want to keep that narrative going in the art world, you know, is what I was told. I would never be able to be anything as an artist because I wasn't represented by a top gallery. I didn't go to art school. I'm not classically trained and I'm a mom, <laughs> like a stay-at-home mom. Like those just don't all equate to a professional artist in society's old standards. Mm -hmm. And so I was seeing the shift with social media and I was seeing the shift with accessibility to more people where you didn't need that middleman in terms of a gallery in order to sell your art. And I was, I sat down, I was like, well, if this is working for me, it'll probably work for other people. And so why not help them develop skills that they can use from my classes that can also help them provide for their families? Like my art is providing for mine. And so the catalyst behind my classes was just to share the skills I've learned, whether they match up to the New York Academy of Art, if that even exists, <laughs> their standards of teaching. Mm -hmm. They're just a stay-at-home mom who loves painting, who's created a really successful business with her work, like with her art. I just want to share that. I just want other people who just want to paint and just want to create a scene that might look like something that I create. And I just want them to have the tools so that they can sit down 
and meditate in their own way, in their own creative process, because I think art is so healing and so important. It's helped me survive motherhood with two little boys. And I feel like that's a gift that should be shared worldwide for anybody who is able to do it. And I am able, so I'm doing that. Thank you, Sarah. <laughs> Thank you for doing it. You're welcome. I, I'm sure there are people who have taken your courses that would say that. And I'm sure there are people that are listening that will try one of your courses and will say that because uh, I can't see how this can go wrong based on your personality and the work that you've done. So I do agree that there is a barrier to some. And the fact that you've done this, and you have a number of courses available. Did you, do you still have someone Skillshare or did you move them like, but you have some on your site too? Yeah. So Skillshare I, it was the first platform that really came out that allowed you to post your courses and have access to their student database so that people could sign up for Skillshare and you have thousands of teachers like you could learn from. Yeah. Which yeah. really spoke to me. But then they kept changing ownership and changing policies and teachers just kept getting paid less and less and less and less. And it didn't really sing with my soul. But what I didn't know was you can't take your videos off of Skillshare. So they're there and they're my, they're, I crack up when I see them because they're my very first classes that are up there, which are just me. And as you know, with my technological abilities, some of them are quite fantastically horrible in the tech side of things. But they really resonated with people. And so Skillshare to me is still very important in that I'm glad those videos are there. And I still post a couple new ones up there too, just for the people who can afford to take, you know, the full class. It's, I think it's $20 a month on Skillshare. And I just, I'm trying to keep my classes as accessible as possible. And I, you know, I really love the students on Skillshare. I've met some actually lovely friends now who have taken every course and who are my biggest supporters, but I decided to kind of take back some of the power that Skillshare holds over some creative teachers in that I am, people can just buy directly from the artist myself from, in terms of my classes and have those available on my website so that, you know, 90% isn't going to a big corporation. It's actually coming back to an artist and her family. And so that was my shift away from Skillshare. But everything is still up on Skillshare. And what can I ask you what platform you're using to host your own stuff? So I use Podia. Okay. It's really great. So I have actually back in Toronto, I met this awesome human. His name's Dash. And he made my first website for me. This is back in when I was 25. And he is still making all my he does all my online i i pay him a monthly salary and he is my <laughs> nice. tech guy and so he actually does all the research for me and comes to me with a list of stuff with the pros and cons because again motherhood you don't have a lot of free time to really explore these things and he's such a gift to me in that he's really helped me find the best things that i might have known about because he's a real techie and just brilliant in that side of things. And so he found Podia, which I really like. So I host everything on Podia, which is integrated into my website. Um, and you can create like creative communities. You can, you can do like much like Patreon. You can also set up a paid level where you have access to more, which I haven't found time to do yet. I'm so excited to do that. People are waiting for me to do that, but that's next steps. Um, so Podia, yeah, it was a fantastic 
Uh, I tried Teachable. I looked into Teachable, but I wasn't as crazy about it as I, I really like how Podia, it's really simple. It's really user-friendly. Um, it integrates well into websites, like personal websites. So if you're looking to teach, I really suggest Podia. Yeah, I just did my first course. And uh, so it when you were talking about that in that transition, I just, I was just focused on what you were saying because <laughs> it is getting to that point. And I had the same struggles. It's like, who am I? I didn't start till I was 40. Yeah. And I have no training. So who wants to hear from me? People want to hear about you and your approach and your story. And there may be something that you say that they've been searching for. And exactly. it's, they're, they're not going to you because you're the atelier of, of whatever they're going to because you're you. Exactly. And so that was a big thing for me. So oh, now I'm doing a six. Doing that. Well, it's, <laughs> it's, a, it's, it's a start, right? But, but that's, takes courage. It does. And I'm doing it a six week, seven week one now in the fall and uh, presenting at a conference. I think it's great when an artist gets to a point that they start to accept their value beyond the tools they use. And then they start to elevate, which is my theme for this year is elevate. They start to elevate their expertise. They start to elevate their game to realize that they sit at a level that others could benefit from. And so I'm glad that you've taken on education. It's so true. And it's such a scary thing because, I mean, online you're just seeing all sorts of these professional artists just with huge numbers and everything. It's overwhelming, especially with social media followers and stuff. I have no clue how mine have gotten to where they're at. It still blows my mind, the numbers. But it's so important to recognize it's not how many followers you have or, you know, what you're selling your art for or anything. It's the connection you have to your work and the way your work makes other people feel. And once you lean into that, much like, you know, accepting the fact that you do have something to share with the world on a level of teaching, once you also learn that your art has a value and a purpose if it makes one person smile or one person stop and think or one person breathe deeper or one person go and take that big breath of wonder then you have already reached the level of greatness because you don't need any more validation than that as a creative you just art is meant for people to feel something especially the artist and once you make sure you do that for yourself. And I think then you can confidently, even though it still takes a courageous leap, you know, take that step into teaching because then you believe in yourself in a level that will translate into your, whatever you decide to teach as a course, right? Because you're not hovering behind insecurities. You're like, no, you know what? Darn it. I'm a really good drawer. You know, I'm going to go do this little course. Hopefully someone loves it, you know? And so I think it's super important that you also touched on that because just understanding that you have value and you are powerful in your creative voice and your creative passion, and you are worthy of sharing it and that you deserve to be seen and appreciated for your journey. You know what I mean? If that makes any sense. I'm not sure. I just started rambling, but it made sense in my mind. <laughs> no, that was beautiful. Uh, it's And it's interesting. You talk about the numbers. Uh, like I've had artists on here that have had, you know, one or two, 3,000 
followers mm-hmm. on, on Instagram. And honestly, I didn't, I saw your work and I just looked at your numbers, like you've got 220,000 or something. I didn't even really think about that because mm-hmm. I saw your work and I was immediately drawn into the work. And then I went and saw the YouTube videos and it, it's all to say, you know, Robert Bateman doesn't have a presence on Instagram, really. Right. I, I, I don't even know if he does. Actually, I don't <laughs> even know. So people need to stop measuring their mm-hmm. worth, their appeal, their impact based on the number of followers they have anywhere. Uh, you know, because it, it, it's not even a real number. There's so many bots out there. You can oh. buy followers. It's just, exactly. it's all a facade. Mm-hmm. And it's a toxic facade, too. It's really, yes. it really like dulls a creative passion when you feel like you're not enough because of a number, right? right? You know, it's so easy to fall into that trap. And I try and just push other artists out of it because I'm like, don't, are you happy with what you're creating? Is it speaking to your soul? Only then will you be able to thrive on your creative journey. If you sit there and look at numbers, you're just going to keep going down. You're going to rob yourself of the magic of the process. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. You're you're working to the to the wrong outcome, mm-hmm. and uh, you know I think you've done it brilliantly. You've got a beautiful website, but what I really love about your your communication is you put so much value you can see into your newsletter. Oh, you're so sweet. And that's important, and I think that's a way to connect with people. And more people mm-hmm. have to do newsletters, mm-hmm. and I have to do more newsletters because I don't do enough <laughs> of sending it out. But that's a way to connect with with people mm-hmm. uh, who want to experience your art, mm-hmm. but experience your courses and everything else as well. And, and it's more um, personal. Exactly. Because you're writing to people who actually are signed up to be there. Much like you just said, there's bots and all sorts of weird number generators and all this on social media. With your newsletter, you have people who have chosen to subscribe and chosen to hear your voice and see what you create. And I'm not joking. I have people who have been supporting my work and buying my work that are like family now, <laughs> where if I send out a newsletter, I get this most beautiful, like their life in a nutshell update because they feel so connected to me and I'm so connected to them because we have built this relationship that is not some social media post. It's they know what's going on with my family. You know, I, I share that. I share things I'm really excited about. I share, you know, some hardships that might have come our way and why I might be quiet on my newsletter. And that human aspect is so important when you're creating a meaningful creative business, like something that can generate income, but you also want to have a connection and people also want a connection to what you create and the biggest part of that connection is the personal attachment to it like and i feel like the newsletter is a really untapped gem for the creative individual everyone thinks you just need more followers you need more presence on social media no you need to make sure one of my favorite humans um is seth godin have you ever read Mm -hmm. seth godin i just i'm obsessed with him because he just said you just need you know, we can use, you need 10 true fans and a true fan is someone who's going to buy everything you put out. And so, you know, you look at, so I have what, 200 and something thousand followers. That means nothing to me. What matters to me are those people on my newsletter who buy my book, who buy my courses, who give me a shout out back saying, Hey, great job. I'm excited for you. Or those are the people that matter because those are the people who are going to keep coming back and supporting you. And I've seen it tenfold. I have 
collectors who have become family who have invited me to their cottages in Ontario or, you know, like, and we've never met. And I love them so dearly because they've been on my journey with me and that can't be developed unless you reach out on a really personal level. It's wonderful. I I think there's so much to learn from that. I, I do think we need to spend that opportunity to connect with people and it's about finding those true fans and uh, the newsletter is is a really great way to do that obviously having a website's important don't consider instagram as your portfolio no. or your website um, own it yourself have your name.com like, absolutely own it. and just remember yeah. social media can disappear in an instant right like you you see accounts getting hacked all the time you see you know people losing everything they built and that is devastating. But what would be more devastating is if you haven't taken the time to build the back channels, which are through your subscribers on your newsletter or relationships beyond that through email or face-to-face or what have you. Because if social media, like think about it, if social, if your social media account disappeared today, do you have a way to connect with the people who connect to your art beyond that? And chances are 80% of the artists who might be listening don't. Mm-hmm. So I'll always encourage people to subscribe to a newsletter, something that's completely removed from social media. And I've really, really channeled that because I just, I've seen friends who've lost like a hundred thousand followers and they didn't have a good email base. And I just see them struggle and their business crash because they don't have a way to connect to the people who actually want to buy their art or communicate with them. So exactly what you said like just don't rely on social media to build a successful business agreed now you you alluded to something which i want to touch on as well and that is something's coming out may 23rd mm-hmm. <laughs> yes may it's actually coming out may 30th okay yeah so may yeah so my first book is coming out, which is so hard to say out loud, because as a completely self-taught artist, the fact that a publishing house reached out to me to create a book on oil painting is kind of surreal. (laughs) And yeah, overwhelming. And I can't believe it's happened. You know, it was quite the process creating it. So it's an oil painting book for artists of all skill levels, but it is geared more towards the beginner artist. And I go over my favorite oil painting tools. And then I walk step by step through 12 small landscape paintings in my signature style. So there's some misty forests, there's some beautiful misty fields, there's some sunsets with like the trees silhouetted, there's mountains. So it's kind of like a little book of Sarah's paintings that you can create. Um, And it comes out on May 30th. And I'm freaking out that <laughs> I don't think I'll think it's real until I have the book in my hand which should be arriving any day cool but that's a that was one of the biggest I cried when I got that email because I had just left my in-laws house and I was talking about the business I was creating and I was like I really want to open a retail shop that I can send it's so I get so many emails from students saying, I can't find these brushes I you know where I live there's no art store and I'm like okay well how can I make that easier and so I bought all the most affordable art materials I could. And I offer them at a discount from retail value. Like I I actually don't even charge what I'm supposed to for them because I feel for the creative artist out there. I'm not in the retail business to make money. I'm there to support artists who want to paint. And 
And then I just left that conversation just so excited. And then I get this email from Page Street Publishing down in the States. And I thought it was fake. I'm like, Joel, I'm like, my husband, I'm like, <laughs> I just got an email asking if I'd write a book on oil painting. And then I was doing all the Google research. And it turns out they're a legitimate, really well-known publisher in the States. And I just started bawling. Like I was so emotional because I think it was just that moment where you just kind of stop and reflect. And, you know, it was such a struggle proving to myself and proving to others that I could make a career out of oil painting and that I could become something as a self-taught artist and that I didn't need a gallery to take half of a commission from every painting and that I could do it on my own. I could do it as a stay-at-home mom who was exhausted and living off coffee and showered once a week, <laughs> you know? And I just, I remember just sobbing with, with joy and just it was just a really powerful moment. And so I poured every ounce of my heart and soul into that book. And I am so excited for it to come out. That's exciting. I would, I'm going to link directly to this. So I would recommend to the listener, if you are interested in oil painting, take a quick look at this. But there's a huge advantage in pre-ordering it because it does impact the ratings on Amazon. So if you are interested in the book, pre-order it. Oh, you're so sweet. Because that will affect Sarah's visibility in, in Amazon. So try and do that if you can, if you're interested in pursuing oil. The cover itself is just brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I'm so excited. But, uh, yeah, I think, you know, if you listen to this podcast and flipping through this book while you're painting, like that's just, that's a perfect <laughs> meal. That's a perfect creative meal right there. I wanted to ask you because so I got into art because I was a stay-at-home dad. My my wife had a better job than me, so I stayed at home and with our first child. And that's when I started drawing for her. That's and that's so how, awesome. it, how it started. I'm wondering, if you're going through that now with two young boys. And so I identify with this whole kind of stay-at-home kind of thing, right? And trying to, because I was working, mm -hmm. managing things. What would you kind of recommend as a lesson to a stay-at-home parent who's trying to manage this trying to manage a creative pursuit in amongst everything what would you like give a couple of tips that you would recommend or share the greatest advice i can give to any parent who really has a creative passion or wants to find one is that you show up for yourself every single day and it doesn't have to mean you show up for hours it can mean you show up for a minute and whether that is just leaving something out on a, on a counter or in a corner or something like something creative, whether your pencils or your paints or, you know, your musical instrument, whatever it is that you need to, you know, tap into and just leave it there. And when you find a moment in the chaos of parenthood and it is nuts and it is exhausting, but, you know, my kids are my greatest inspiration. Oh, my gosh, they're pure magic. But they were so tiring. <laughs> and you know, my husband was working crazy hours and it just, it was so overwhelming at times, but having my paint set up in a little corner so that when they were occupied doing something that didn't involve me, which was rare, but I had a second, just a second to sit and just do a line on the canvas or just to think about what I wanted to do when they went to bed, just staring at the canvas, even just allow yourself a couple moments every day. And what I found was as soon as I allowed myself a minute, the next day it turned into a minute and a half. And the next day I could find three minutes. And it just kept, because you recognize the importance of showing up for yourself, time will keep growing exponentially because you're going to realize how powerful it is as an, like, 
a meditative tool, as a tool for your mental health amidst the chaos of it all and the busyness of it all and the demanding, <laughs> so demanding. Kids are just, they're amazing and they're demanding, <laughs> full stop. But by giving yourself permission to still show up and be creative in whatever form that looks like, but making it something that is part of your everyday, that's how you will keep growing in your creative field. That's how you will keep momentum going. And that's how you'll keep honoring yourself and that vision. And it will grow and grow and grow. And when your kids reach an age where they are way more independent, you have the wheels in motion. You have something to just jump on and roll with because you're not starting from scratch. And that's what I did. And that was the greatest gift I ever gave myself. I love that. I, I love looking at that as, you know, when you were talking, I'm thinking, yeah, it's almost like you're leaving, like we make opportunities or we try <laughs> to have our coffee and have our snacks during the day and to leave like snack size creativity available to you mm -hmm. such that when you have the time, you can take the meal size version of exactly. it. Exactly. That's well is, put. Yeah, that's yeah, perfect. That's that's uh, I absolutely I wish someone would have shared that with me when I was um, when I was <laughs> as a stay at home. Parent, so. Yeah. And it's just this conversations are so important because it's just something, you know, being a stay at home parent is often just seen as that's it. You, that's your job. Mm -hmm. But you can have more. You can be more. You can be whatever you want or transform it into whatever you want. It's just creating the process and creating the time and creating the routine that will get you there. And it could be that you've got Sarah's book on the coffee table <laughs> and you've got her courses bookmarked on your browser. Exactly. So, <laughs> Thank you, Mike. <laughs> that could be ready to go. All hours. <laughs> <laughs> All hours. So you're still working crazy hours now, right? You're still... Yeah, but the best part is about um, just over a year and yeah, just over a year ago, we, my husband and I sat down and we made a huge change in our world. So um, not this Christmas, but last Christmas, our youngest was really, really sick. And we rushed him to the hospital and he was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes, which means his pancreas essentially died. And now Joel and I are his pancreas. So <laughs> we are, it's around the clock monitoring his blood sugar. It's making sure he has enough insulin in his system. It's, it's full on. And when he was diagnosed, both my husband and I had kind of reached our breaking point with just exhaustion like he was worn out because of his job i was exhausted and the thought of also doing my full-time mother role as well as a business which was just thriving it was doing so well when he was diagnosed i just it was almost the end of me because i was like i can't take any more on we you know we have so much and and my husband was working a job that was very lucrative but just soul-sucking it just wasn't speaking to him and so we sat down and we realized that my business could sustain our family and we could switch roles and the beautiful part is that my role still is a stay-at-home mom but I also have support on every other level now and so he left his job and he's pursuing his passions for the first time which is so exciting but he's also a stay-at-home dad and he's taken so much weight off my shoulders with the care of our kids and also shown those boys that it doesn't matter what you look like to be a stay-at-home parent. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter who it is. And also to support me on my journey in such a beautiful way like that, where he totally wholeheartedly believes 
and what I can create with this has been the biggest gift I've ever been given in life. And so now he's able to be present with the kids and do what he really wants to do with his time. And we're all working as a team. Like I do, I still paint till three in the morning, but now I get to sleep seven hours and he does the morning routine. And then while I'm up painting, if there's a low blood sugar alarm, I'm up there helping my son and he doesn't have to wake up. He can take the daytime stress. And so it's become the most beautiful transformation in our world where my creative business is supporting our family in such a huge way, but it's also allowed us to just find a balance and rest. Like I'm sleeping for the first time in seven years, eight years, <laughs> which is so amazing and important. And yeah, so I paint crazy hours, but I also get to sleep now, which is the greatest gift I've ever been given. Nice. And not only that, but my kids get to see me as a really successful mom but as a woman entrepreneur as well mm -hmm. like they they see that and they see the support and love and magic that my husband feeds my way and I think that's the greatest that's the most proud I am and the most excited I am and the most touched I am about this whole process is just this that my kids get to see this all happening and that they know that anything is possible even if you've never picked up a paintbrush in your life it's never too late and you don't know what it's going to create. And that's trans like that translates into any part of life. It's if you don't try, you'll never know. And they have two parents who will cheer them on no matter what or whatever journey they take. But yeah, so I paint crazy hours. Um, you'll see most of my posts are at like three in the morning. <laughs> but I usually come up for in the morning around 10 o'clock now. I'm a functioning human as opposed to a zombie, which is nice. <laughs> It's it really does take a degree of courage to do what you did and to, to kind of switch roles around. It, and it's even nowadays, it's it's just the change, right? And it's reflecting on yourself. And I think the fact that you're seeing this as a lesson means that um, you know th there's huge value in that in 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 your kids seeing the capacity for people working together for people being able to transition. And these are the stories they're going to tell. As, as they grow up and knowing that they've got opportunities to, to be different, to be themselves and mm -hmm. not be bound by roles. That's right. And also to think outside the box from the traditional, yeah. go to university, get a nine to five. And that's what your option is. It's just this day and age is, is such a beautiful explosion of opportunity for being different yes. and finding different ways and not being in that mindset that there's just one route you can take to be successful in society's eyes. It's you can pour your heart and soul into anything. And if you got the grit, <laughs> you'll get there. You know, if you, you put in the time and you put in the heart and you put in the soul and you, you, you pivot where you need to, you can literally achieve anything. Absolutely. There's so many people I know that are doing the job they're doing because they've accidentally happened on it. Yeah. Um, it, a little bit of intention mm -hmm. and you can go, you can really go far. Oh, absolutely. Right? So Sarah, I always get to this point in the podcast and I'm mindful of the time, but people like the long form podcasts where I asked the guests for some homework, something to engage the listener, something they could take with them to try kind of something Sarah thinks is a, is a good nugget to, to take with them. And I'm wondering what you would propose as homework for the listener. 
I think as with everything in life, we get so focused on an end goal and, you know, the tangible result that we lose the magic of the process. And so what I like to do for myself, which is also what I propose that you all try is to give yourself a set time, say 30 minutes and with whatever medium you use, whether it's painting or drawing, watercolor, I don't whatever you have on hand is take three colors or four colors. Don't go crazy. Give yourself 30 minutes and only use those colors to create something. And don't think about the end goal of that. Try just focusing on the base layers, on creating a mood within really random brush strokes or pencil strokes and allow your creativity just to focus on the process again, as opposed to thinking about the fine details at the end. And it's such a liberating practice. And I do it quite often whenever I'm just feeling a little hung up on a commission or I'm not really inspired, I'm really tired, but I do know I need to do something. And so I do these little test canvases where I have a blank canvas and I give my set a timer and I put those colors on my palette and I just go to town. And it is so much fun because you're not expecting a result. You don't know what you're going to create, so you can't expect it. And when you stand back, it's often really exciting because in those 30 minutes, you had no idea what was within you. You weren't expecting anything. And so I think it's a really great place to start building magic again or to reset yourself. And also just to remember that every step of the process is important and not just that end result of a finished piece. So that would be my homework for everyone is just to set a timer, grab your materials and just play and just get rid of expectations for those 30 minutes and see what you create. That's brilliant. Maybe that's how I'll, I'll start into oil painting. Yeah, I'm <laughs> going to be hounding you for oil painting now. I'm going to ask every week, where is your first oil painting? <laughs> I'll send you. That's how I'll do it. I'll <laughs> I get like three tubes of paint and I'll spend 30 uh, minutes on yeah, the canvas. Yeah, I'll send you the paint, Mike. I will <laughs> send you the brushes and the paint. <laughs> do you have any canvases to spare? I will. I do. They come with my I sets. Just, I'm going to send you a full set. You're not going to be able to excused by cost or anything. They'll be delivered to your door. <laughs> I think at some point I'm, it's inevitable. Um, I'm, I'm, I don't know why I'm pushing so hard on it. Maybe because I'm into so many other things. Mm. And I don't know. I'll get to it at some point. The problem is once you start, it is so addictive because you're not stuck with anything. After you put it on the canvas, you have hours to keep transforming it. And it's once you get a feel for the medium, oh my gosh, I'm it's my favorite thing in the world. Just knowing that I can absolutely. But see, I'm so used now to to like working with watercolor where I can lay it down, I can push it around a little bit, and then it's dry. I can do something else over here and it doesn't interfere. What happens if you don't like it before it's like once it's dry, you're like, ah, oh, you have to start again, don't you, Mike? Oh, yeah, but with oils, you don't. <laughs> I just, I just let it up, eat me up inside for a week. That's all. I gotta get you oil paint. This is killing me. <laughs> I, I think that's that's a great exercise. I could I could use that. It's sometimes you do get stuck, and then you start looking at the other piece you're working on, or you know, oh, I've got this reference photo. I should try instead of just playing. Mm -hmm. I, and I talk about it so much, and I do play, but I you know we do need to play more. Oh, we do. And it's the current state of 
the creative marketplace with all these different social media, it's just, it can be so overwhelming and it can just rob you of the creative magic sometimes. And so I think just that reminder to just keep it fun and you'd be amazed at when you do that, you'll probably be more successful. You'll probably have more magic within your paintings and, or whatever medium you're using. And it'll just feel more liberating and more soul nourishing and not so much focused on what's happening around you in the outside world. Just the play is so important. I have one more question before I ask people where they can find you online. Sarah, who do you paint for? Oh, I paint for, that's a loaded question. I know. (laughs) That's a really loaded question. I paint for myself because painting is an extension of my very being. It is, I get, agitated when I can't sit down to paint like I I, there's something in me it's almost like it just needs to come out it's so deep within me it's part of my existence now there's not a day I don't think I'll ever not want to paint and the other thing I paint for is for my family because these are pieces of soul that I create and they are part of my soul so knowing that these long hours I put in and the disasters I create throughout our house (laughs) and that I'm still able to stay home and get the hugs or comfort my kids when they need it. And that this has also in turn allowed my husband to start following his own dreams. That is my why. That is who I paint for because they are my world and art is also my world. So it's just this really beautiful you know, meshing of both of my favorite things. And that's, that's my answer to that. That's a good answer. (laughs) And, you know, thank your husband for keeping it quiet. (laughs) I know. I've started to get text messages. They're like, we got chicken and I'm walking the dog. I'm like, okay. (laughs) I know. They're all probably sitting out on the front steps. (laughs) It's picnic day. Mom's the worst. (laughs) (laughs) So thank you. Thank him for that. And, uh, you know, your parents did well. And, you know, to bring you to where you are and kind of give you the tools and the framework. And I think this is, it's wonderful to hear a successful artist without an art education, being able to pivot and being able to have that support and explore. And so I, I would recommend people checking you out online. And so Sarah, where can people find you? They can find me on my website, which is sarahmckendry.ca. I'm kind of technologically able to handle Instagram. <laughs> Not many other things, but um, that's art, at artist Sarah McKendry. And then I'm over on TikTok, but I don't know what I'm doing over there. And that's also no artist. One does. No, it's, okay. it's the most confusing platform. <laughs> and I would recommend subscribing to Sarah's newsletter. I think this is the big advantage we have as artists is as long as you throw like a few pieces of your work into a newsletter, people love seeing Mm -hmm. that kind of stuff appear. Exactly. So I think uh, I love seeing Sarah's newsletter pop up and I would recommend you do your own, but uh, you can find a link for that on her site as well. So that's, that's fantastic. Well, thank you so much, Sarah. This has been incredible. I'm I'm maybe closer to oil painting (laughs) now, (laughs) but it's been, it's been wonderfully inspiring and I feel like we've connected on a few levels in, in our journey and what we're doing, even though I've never touched oils, but I feel like there's a commonality there. And, uh, as, you know, as a fellow Canadian, you know, I think we're adhering to Canadian content required in podcasts, maybe, but uh, regardless of that, we I think talk that... talk about hockey, though. 
Yeah. Yeah, we didn't talk about <laughs> hockey. I, I think that could get a bit dicey seeing as how you're you're out there and I'm in over here. But I really enjoyed this conversation. I think people will find your work, artwork inspiring and I think it'll move them. I think the opportunity of being able to be in a class with you through the classes that you provide, I think is going to be uh, helpful for so many artists. So thank you so much for your time. I know it's been a long podcast, and but I, I don't think I would have wanted it any shorter. And I thank you so much for putting the time aside. And thanks again to your husband for, <laughs> for managing the, the quiet house for us. So I appreciate that. Mike, it has been so much fun talking with you. And I can't thank you enough for reaching out, but also for giving artists who are like myself, a voice and validation in this field. It just means the world to me that you're actually even interested in my story and that you've been so much fun to talk to. I was so nervous coming into this and I feel like we could talk for another three hours and still never run out of a thing to say. And you are pure magic and you're so appreciated and I'm so honored to be on this podcast with you. Thank you. Thank you so much. You're going to make me cry now. (laughs) (laughs) You and me both. (laughs) Well, take care of yourself. Uh, I hope the book launch goes well. I'm sure there's going to be listeners helping support that and uh, wishing you all the best in 2023. Thank you. And right back at you. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Bye. Show notes, including links to everything Sarah and I spoke about, can be found at drawinginspiration.fm slash 99. If you enjoy the show, please follow, then share with someone you think may find it helpful with their creative journey. Thank you so much for joining us this week. Be kind to yourself and each other, and keep drawing. Theme music for this podcast is Acid Jazz, provided by Kevin McLeod. 